This week we're talking about sexual intimacy. Last week we talked about the roles of a husband and wife. I tried to establish that there are three key words that all believers need to understand. The gospel, understand the word love, and understand the word submissiveness. And I tried to help you understand that that applies to all believers, but it especially applies in unique ways to the relationship between a husband and a wife. Week one, we talked about the foundation of marriage, that marriage is not an institution, it's a revelation. It's designed to say something to the world, to other people, about what God is like. And now in this third Sunday, we're going to talk about the matter of sexual intimacy, and my goal is to help you understand a biblical and beautiful vision for sex. My hope is to be able to help you understand what does the Bible say about this important topic, and to, in many respects, sort of redeem sexuality from the ash heap of our culture. I'm praying that you'll see this vision and that you'll know what God intended for the expression in the context of marriage of sexuality. I also want you to know that I hope to apply some grace to the painful or maybe regrettable mistakes of the past. I want you to know how the gospel informs how you think about the brokenness, quite frankly, that all of us have at some level. I'm really glad you came to church today, and my hope is to be faithful to what the text is saying. Parents in particular, if you have kids with you, I promise you I'm going to be careful and not put you in too awkward of a position with your younger kids. I don't think, frankly, that they'll hear anything that they wouldn't hear already at school or perhaps even what they watch online. But here's the thing. Even if they do hear something that they've not heard before, I, I praise God that they heard that word the first time in church and that when you go home, you can be the first person in the door asking and answering those questions. I just want to encourage you to have that sort of activist position because as you're going to see, we all learn our view of sexuality somewhere. The question, does the church, does the Bible, do parents have anything to do with that? This morning I want to talk about two kinds of intimacy, both from 1 Corinthians 7 and also 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because when Paul's writing to this church, he's trying to address a wrong understanding of sexual intimacy. And what's fascinating about this passage is its incredible relevance in the way that it speaks to our present culture. You're going to see not much has changed since the first century. There typically has been two divergent views regarding sexual intimacy. On the one hand, there's a false intimacy that generally characterizes the viewpoint of our culture, and then there's true intimacy as reflected in the Bible in terms of God's design, and Paul's aim was to try and address both of those issues, the false intimacy of the culture and the true intimacy as it relates to a biblical perspective. So let's look at both of these and see what we can learn and apply. First, false intimacy is something that Paul is speaking against. He's trying to help them understand how they ought not to think in the way that reflects their culture. Now, to understand this, we have to go back to verse 13 of chapter 6. So follow along as I read verses 13 through 17. Paul says this, Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Here's where, where we get to the really significant point that Paul's trying to make in chapter 6. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, this letter to the church at Corinth addresses a host of problematic issues in the church. I mean, you could think of it, problems in churches create epistles that need to be delivered to them to try and address, here's where you're thinking incorrectly. And so, I mean, there's all kinds of challenges in this church. They were filled with divisions. They were suing one another. There was a toleration of sexual sin in verse, uh, chapter 5. That should have been very apparent that they needed to deal with, but apparently they weren't. Some assume or think that the person was kind of wealthy, so they were kind of kowtowing to this person. So we, we come now to chapter 6 and chapter 7, and the problem generally is this, that the church was adopting the values of their culture. They, they were being more informed by what Corinth was saying and the environment that they were being inundated with all the time rather than thinking biblically about what is God's vision for human sexuality. And can we just acknowledge that we face the same danger? The fact of the matter is every day, sometimes hour by hour, there's a narrative that's being pumped to us and is being assimilated into our minds and our hearts. And depending on kind of what home you were raised in and what your background is, even kind of where you are in your own spiritual journey, there are ideas and concepts and, and even sort of presuppositions, fundamental ideas about how you think in the world that you bring into the conversation as to what you think and what happens with the issues of sexual intimacy. So there were some people in the city of Corinth, most of them, quite frankly, who were treating sex as if it didn't matter. No big deal. And then there were others, likely within the church, that were treating sex as if it was bad, even dirty. And so Paul looks at both of these as a false intimacy. In order to understand what's going on, you have to know a little bit about the city of Corinth. It was a major metropolitan city. It was the seat of commerce and diversity, socioeconomic opportunities and challenges. And like all major metropolitan areas, wherever there are human beings, and a lot of them, there's also going to be rampant immorality. It's no different than any other large city within the United States, or for that matter, even small cities, even our own. Can we just agree that Naptown can be naughty? It can be. In particular, in the city of Corinth, there was a culture of immorality. The city was known for its pagan worship. There was one temple in particular that was particularly attractive. It was the temple to the goddess Aphrodite. She was the goddess of love and beauty. And prostitution was a part of the worship at that temple. So you can imagine how both attractive it was and how rampant sexual immorality was throughout the culture of Corinth. It was so endemic to their society that Athanasius, uh, a Greek rhetorician from the second century, said this. This is the viewpoint. We keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for daily concubinage, but wives in order to produce children legitimately and to have a trustworthy guardian of our domestic property. So 
the morality of sexual intimacy was just downplayed in the city of Corinth. And to counter this, Paul writes to the church, connects them back to the original design in the book of Genesis, refers to the one flesh union that we've already talked about, and then he connects their spiritual oneness as Christians to the very person of Christ, making their sexual activity an extension of their relationship with Jesus. In effect, he says, you sleep with a prostitute, you're taking Jesus with you into that union. So the problem in Corinth is the problem not unlike our own society and our modern culture, that the default sexual ethic for human beings is to take sex and decouple it from morality. How does this happen? couple ways. First, it happens when we view sexuality as merely a human desire. Throughout our culture, people see, sort of a secular mindset, they see sex as merely a part of the human appetite. And for that matter, a part of the human appetite that must be fulfilled. And therefore, any sort of restrictions on this human appetite, whether they're moral restrictions or ethical restrictions, or religious restrictions, any kind of restrictions on this sexual activity as appetite are seen as backwards, prudish, unnecessary, maybe even repressive. Man, if you're a single adult, if you're a teenager, and you're trying to pursue a path of of moral and sexual purity, you, you know what it feels like. You feel like an exile who's really different than most of the people around you. And the challenge for you is figuring out, how do I be a Christian in this environment without being weird in a bad way, but at the same time, being chaste, being pure in a good way? And you'll have to deal with the funny looks, the silly comments, the hurtful statements. All the while, there's this gravitational pull trying to pull you the other way. And friends who would love to see you fall so they could feel good about their own failings. The problem, however, is this view of sexuality, if we're honest, it just simply objectifies people. It creates, when you see sex as an appetite, it creates a a transactional relationship based upon using the other person to be able to meet your own desire. And so what you have is you have two people who are just using one another in order to meet their own needs. This is the false intimacy behind, frankly, every form of sexual immorality but it's also the false intimacy behind pornography. This idea that I could have a non-relational, non-life-giving, non-self-giving portrayal of some sort of sexual image that then fulfills me when it's, there's nothing covenantal, there's nothing other-oriented, there's nothing related to giving. It is a complete false intimacy. So that's sex as human appetite. Here's the other perspective, and this is more common in our culture. It probably was in Paul's day, but I think in terms of application, the other view in our culture is that sex is a critical form of self-expression. So rather than just seeing it sort of as this human appetite, no, now we've actually changed it in our modern day society that sexuality is more philosophical, even heroic. True intimacy is found by discovering yourself and then being yourself and however you want to express that sexuality. So more than sexuality being an appetite, 
Now sexuality is open to the whims of the individual. And the primary aim of this mindset is to find self-fulfillment and self-realization to discover who you are sexually and then express that. And the heroes of today in our culture just kind of see the world, see media through this lens this week. The heroes of today are those who don't let anyone or any religious system hold them back from that self-expression. How dare you say that that's wrong? The tragedy is that if you pursue sexuality or marriage through this lens, you will never find true fulfillment because God did not design marriage or sexuality to be the answer to your self-fulfillment needs. And that's the tragedy. They move from self-fulfillment in one relationship to another, to another, to another, to another, relentlessly pursuing this fulfillment desire that can only be found in Christ. And what the biblical perspective is on sexuality is this. Sex doesn't create self-fulfillment. Self-fulfillment in Christ produces appropriate sexuality. So the problem in Corinth and the problem in our own culture is simply treating sexuality as if it didn't matter. And that's why Paul says, look, you go to a prostitute, you are one flesh with her. He's not saying it's the same thing like in that covenantal relationship, but what he's saying is you're expressing something that doesn't fit with both who you are, who Christ is, or what sexuality was intended. Which is why he makes such a big deal about a Christian's union with Christ and the serious nature of immorality. But there's a third view. That also relates to this idea of false intimacy. And it's to view sexuality as a part of the base nature of humanity. To take sexuality and say, ugh, it's, it's really not good. It treats sex as dirty. And what's interesting is this was also part of the Corinthian culture. It, it may not have been like that pronounced where people were calling it dirty, but it's then it probably sounded something like this. Look, in light of how decadent our culture is, we're going to commit ourselves to sexual chastity in every arena, even marriage. And so when Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he's taking probably something that they said, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, and Paul is saying, you've said this, and that's true, but be careful. Because you could over-apply this, as so often happens in the context of people who are kind of swinging from one extreme to another, that they over-apply their mistakes of the past or trying to push against the culture, and they end up choosing another option, which isn't biblical, but merely is the response to what they're reacting toward. This happens often in the context of parents who become Christians and they have regrets because of their past. And they take their past and they're like, that's not going to happen to my kids. And as a result, they go way to the other side and they don't trust the gospel, they trust their rules. They trust their inspection. Or maybe you have folks that were growing up in such a restrictive home that they're like, on the other side, we're just going to let our kids figure it out for themselves. We don't want to have them feel like we're being legalistic. So as a result, balancing this cultural onslaught, biblical truth, and our tendency to react is a point where we need a lot of wisdom to know, how do you do this? So false intimacy either avoids sex or it uses sex for reasons that do not fit within God's plan. And as a result, either of these options in the context of false intimacy become destructive. So what should we do? We haven't gotten yet to chapter 7. I'm going to give you the biblical vision, but here's a couple things to think about. First, I'd like you to evaluate the source of your understanding, your perspective, and your attitudes about sexuality. 
if you have a past where you indulge with all sorts of sexual behavior, you're going to have to work hard to reform and reframe your mind and heart. One of the dangers of the onslaught of pornography is it is shaping a view of sexuality that is not only unrealistic, but it's incredibly objectifying and dehumanizing. We have to ask ourselves, where am I getting my value set for sexuality? I'm getting it from somewhere. Secondly, I want to encourage you that every culture throughout the history of mankind has faced substantial issues as it relates to sexuality, so we ought not to throw up our hands, give in, because our culture is worse than it's ever been. It's not worse than it's ever been. It's just the worst you've ever experienced because it's the culture that you're in. And third, this text offers some hope at a in a deeply personal arena, an area that, if we're honest, can be filled with a lot of pain, a lot of regret, a lot of shame, and a lot of frustration, and yet the gospel can come in, and yes, Jesus speaks even to this, and no matter where you've been or what's your story, I promise you, friend, there is freedom in Jesus, and you've never gone too far that he can't come and rescue you. And if you were to do an MRI of every person in this church, you'd find that All of us have some level of sexual brokenness in our lives. All of us. So that's false intimacy. What's true intimacy? In chapter 7, Paul addresses this statement about the goodness of a man not having sexual relations with a woman. And so he, he wants to be careful that he both affirms chastity is good but be careful that you don't over-apply it. So before we get into the application in the context of marriage, let me just speak to our singles. For all of the talk of marriage, we have to remember that Paul affirms the vision of non-married people living out their commitment, and he affirms it in verse one. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. I mean, marriage is hard, but being a single in our present-day culture trying to maintain sexual fidelity with all of the pressures, all of the prevailing ethic of our day is really, really challenging. So here's what I want to charge those of you who are married and everyone else here who's not single. Let's be sure that we continue to work on helping our church to be a community where single adults know we're in this with it to help them win this battle. And that happens by you befriending them, walking alongside them, helping them to follow Jesus, just like you follow Jesus, because both of you face the same battle, but just in different contexts and different ways. Now, Paul is concerned that the application of verse 1 would be overextended to marriage. He's concerned that someone in the context of marriage would say, hey, I've dedicated myself to God, and as a result, that a marriage would find itself not expressing God's intended design of sexual intimacy. So he identifies what should sexual intimacy look like in the context of a marriage. Three words. First word, the word exclusive. Verse two says this, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So what the Bible does is define here very specifically and limits it very intentionally with the words let him have Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So, therefore, just to say it, all other expressions of sexuality with other people, with people of the same gender, or with yourself, are outside of God's plan. 
Remember, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, the text said a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So why are those outside of the boundaries of God's design? The reason is, is that God has designed sexuality to be expressed in the confines of a covenant. Outside of a covenant, sexuality not only isn't right, it actually is dangerous. Genesis 2 places sexuality in the context of a covenantal relationship. This is really important because in our modern day society, people don't value covenants. And and therefore, it may be that that you're presently um, engaged in immoral behavior even though you're planning to get married to the person. You're engaged and you're like, what's the big deal? We're gonna be married, but we're not married yet. Or maybe you're living with somebody and you're like, I don't understand. Why Why is a covenant such a big deal? Well, Here's what Tim Keller says. The Bible says, do not unite with someone physically unless you are willing to unite with the person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Don't become physically naked and vulnerable to the other person without becoming vulnerable in every other way because you've given up your freedom and bound yourself in marriage. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. Let me press this even further. Without the marriage covenant, sex is actually dangerous. Why? Because here's why. Because it creates emotions, and sex is designed to do that. It creates emotions that are then ahead of commitment. It images something or surfaces emotions that are designed to cause that covenant to grow even deeper and to become more solidified. And sex outside of the covenantal relationship causes you to make promises that you've not ever covenanted to. I will never leave you. I love you so much. When the fact of the matter is, is that there was no commitment to remain faithful in the context of the covenant. That's why Paul reacts so negatively in chapter 6 when he talks about sexual relations with a prostitute. The fact of the matter is is that sex makes us feel connected to the other person, even when it's used sinfully. So I don't doubt that you feel married when you're not. And you can even act married when the fact of the matter is, is that no commitment has been made. And the effect of this is this. You can then become more committed than you should, and some of you have stayed in a bad relationship because you feel more than what you should because sexuality has been brought to the table way before it should have. You see, that's where sex becomes dangerous. You end up creating emotions that are ahead of commitment. God designed sex to be powerful. He designed it to be the glue that renews the regular covenant of marriage, and that's why an exclusive marriage covenant is so necessary, where you say in front of a company of people, this is what I covenant myself to in front of these folks and in front of God, and therefore sexuality just merely affirms what has already been covenanted to. So, exclusive. Next word, the word selfless. Look at verse three. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This this kind of language in the first century would have been shocking. To think that women have authority over a man's body? It's incredible. And yet Paul is going cross-cultural here. 
against the grain of society, helping to evaluate both the, or highlight rather, the um, equality of both men and women, and changing the uh, contemporary view of sexuality as merely the objectification of the other person. Instead, now what marriage becomes is a way to image the God-ordained nature of their commitment such that they consider others' needs as more important than their own. So in the context of marriage, it is that my body no longer belongs to me. Such that married couples have an obligation to practice selfless love in every area, including sexuality. And that means the willingness to give oneself and the willingness to delay one's desire in deference to a spouse. The idea is that the other person's sexual fulfillment The other person's needs needs to be one's focus. So then, biblically, true intimacy then is not in receiving, but in giving. Last week I said that marriage is like a dance, like a waltz. Well, maybe this week we need to think of it like the salsa or something like that. The the, the fact of the matter is is that it's 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 a movement where a husband and a wife are combining together in their union in order to give deference to one another. The goal is that there should be so much mutual concern for one another that sexual oneness is simply the most vivid expression of oneness in all other areas. So sex both reflects that oneness and it rekindles oneness. Now when you read it, it says that the husband is to give his wife her conjugal rights. When you think about rights, other translations say he's to fulfill his marital duty. Sometimes you hear the word duty and you think, man, that's not very romantic privately struggle because you think in your mind, man, if you have sex out of a sense of duty, it would be inauthentic or somehow meaningless. But yet, what the Bible is saying here is that while sexual intimacy certainly can and should have passion, the fact of the matter is is that if you both wait, if a husband and wife wait until each of them are equally passionate, sexual intimacy will become less and less frequent. And when that happens, that creates less and less passion, and that creates a pretty vicious cycle. Again, Keller says this, sex is perhaps the most powerful, God-created way to give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong to you. You cannot use sex to say anything else. Here's the challenge. The lure of illicit sex, just to put it on the table, is the risk The temptation of illicit sex is the excitement of conquering or of being pursued. The lure of illicit sex is the desire to impress. But have you ever wondered why people float from marriage to marriage and partner to partner? Why the person who like blows up one marriage, blows up three or four, or breaks up with one person out of the next one, the next one, the next one? The, the, The challenge is, is after a while, the ability to impress goes away. You're stuck with you. And when your lover figures out who you really are, they may be on to another lover because they're no longer impressed with the impressive you. So what's biblical sexuality? Mm. Biblical sexuality is this. Your spouse knows you and still makes love to you. So brother or sister, when that temptation comes and you see someone, you think, hmm, what would that be like? Remind yourself, well, my spouse knows what I'm like and they still love me. 
That person doesn't know you. And when they know you, they're probably going to leave you. Because sexual intimacy in the context of a biblical framework is to be known and loved covenantally, not by virtue of impressing or conquering or being pursued, but rather out of the full expression of what it means to give myself to another person. That's why the marriage covenant is so critical. Sex simply reflects the selfless commitment of covenant. And then finally, the Bible tells us this is important. Look at verse 5. He says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. So Paul sets all sorts of, of restrictions or boundary markers on moments when a couple might intentionally fast from sexual activity. He says, the purpose is that you may devote yourself to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So again, what Paul's doing, he's elevating this principle of chastity, saying chastity is awesome, but don't bring that into the context of marriage as if that's more spiritual unless there are clear boundary markers. You see, what Paul is arguing for here is that there is something life-giving about sexual intimacy in the context of a marriage covenant. It's been helpful for me to think about this as like it's a covenant renewal. In the same way that we receive the Lord's table and are reminded regularly of what it is that Jesus did in terms of death, burial, and resurrection, so too sexual intimacy in the context of a covenant marriage is a way to remember to rehearse and even reinforce the mysterious union between a husband and wife. And so in many respects, the act of sexual intimacy becomes a covenant renewal where a husband and wife live out the drama of their very marriage commitment in their one flesh union. And so then through the various seasons of life, as intimacy changes, let me encourage married couples, keep working on your marriage, make your relationship a priority, make exclusive, selfless intimacy an important part of your marriage. If you're single, I hope that just seeing this image will add fuel to your fire to pursue Jesus and be a person who's pure. I'm glad you came today, even though it was gonna, you knew I was going to talk about marriage. And, and if you fail, confess your sin, invite people in, and pursue Jesus renewed and passionately. I want to encourage you as a single adult to keep fighting in the midst of a hostile world. In church, again, I want to remind you that it's important for us to help our single adults know that we're walking alongside them so that this could be a place where single adults thrive. If you're a parent, let me speak to you. Please, please, please help your child understand a biblical view of sexuality. Mom or dad, you can't afford to be on the sidelines on this one. You can't. Your kids are going to learn about sex somewhere and from someone, and I hope it's from you. I encourage you to be proactive, to be open, share about your own struggles, how you battle and fight. You don't have to open the entire story, but help them know, look, this is something we're in together. Disciple your kids in every area, but especially on this, in this one. I remember one of our elders, I was talking about this with him. He had some older um, children, and he said, Mark, the thing you need to be concerned about is not what's not on the table. Or the thing you need to be concerned about, rather, is what's not on the table not what's on the table. Does that make sense? Let me say that again. 
because it's really important to understand what I'm not saying about not saying something not. <laughs> what I'm saying is the things you need to be concerned about are the stuff that you're not talking about. Take comfort that you're having this conversation, even if it's awkward, or even if like, oh, I don't want to talk about this, or ah, oh, how can we have to talk about this? Don't be concerned about the stuff that's on the table. Be concerned about the stuff that you're not talking about, because there is a flowing stream underneath your home and underneath your kids' lives, and you need to watch. How can I help them in the midst of this battle? And then finally, if you are a married couple, I want to encourage you to consider this message and take a step in making your marriage or maybe even your intimacy somehow better. I dare you to talk about this message on the way home today. Maybe it'll be kind of a quiet car ride. I don't know. Maybe this isn't the right moment. Maybe there's kids in the car. You'll wait till later. Let me encourage you to get a grip on your calendar to seek one another's forgiveness if in this arena you've been selfish or if you've been demanding Become a loving, other-centered spouse in all areas, but especially in regards to sexuality. And then if you're here and right now you just have all sorts of just overwhelming feelings of guilt because you've messed up, you've blown it, here's what I'm telling you, friend. You need to apply the gospel to your life. Jesus loves you, and he died for all sins, including sexual sin. And the hope of the gospel is this. Maybe you're here today, you're not yet a Christian, and like your marriage relationship or kind of your singleness and your pursuit of, of fulfillment in other areas is not kind of striking you in the face, realizing, I, like, I'm broken, and I'm just here to tell you, Jesus can heal broken people, and he can give you a new life, he can give you a new mind, he can give you new desires, he can give you a new marriage, and it starts by you taking the first step and saying, I am broken, and I'm not perfect, and I need Jesus' help. And I want you to know that the church is filled with people who not only have had that as their life's message, but also who are regularly having to apply the gospel to our lives because none of us are perfect and none of us are perfect even in this arena. What God wants in the confines of marriage is for sexuality combined with covenant to say something powerful about who Jesus is and about Jesus' relationship with the church. And that's why Paul even understanding all of what sexuality is, says I'm speaking about a great mystery that is between Christ and the church. Sexuality in the confines of marriage is not only beautiful, but it also portrays the mystery of God's love for us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we need your help at so many levels. God, I don't even know all of the individual circumstances, just categories of people that I need to pray for today, and I'm thankful that you do know all of the contours of this subject matter. And I pray today that you would apply your grace and your kindness and your compassion to our lives. Lord, all of us need an understanding of who we really are in you. Lord, we need to see you take greater and greater influence in our thinking in our acting. Lord, I, pr I pray that you would apply the word by the Holy Spirit into some very personal areas in our lives. And now, church, just with your head bowed and your eyes closed, let's take a moment before we sing together. Let's sing a great song, a way just to confess our allegiance to Jesus. But would you take a few moments and just, just silently ask the Lord, Lord, what was this message for me about today? Would you just 
If you're married, what steps might you need to take? If you're a single adult, what steps? If you're a teenager, young person, what, what steps do you need to take? And just ask the Lord, talk to him about how to apply this message in your life. And then in a moment, we'll sing together.